Today we are in part three in our series called The Study of God. Now to have a glimpse of God or to see God is an absolutely fascinating thing. The Bible does tell us that no man can see God. However, God's attributes, God's nature, God's character is clearly seen in scriptures and also in nature. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature, these three things, His attributes, His power, and His nature have been clearly seen, been understood through what has been made, so that there's no man that will ever have an excuse before God. Romans 1 Verse 20, to have a clear grasp of all of God's attributes is fascinating. But to study them and to know them makes you do one of two things. You can have really one of two responses here. Either you will run for shelter when you see God's attributes, you'll run for shelter, or you will fall down and worship God. The person outside of Christ will run to Christ for shelter, like they ran to the ark when it started raining in the flood. You will either run for shelter to Christ when you see the severity of God, or the person in Christ will fall to their knees and they'll join the angels in singing holy, holy, holy when they see the glory of God. When God is revealed, every man has to respond one way or another. In Jeremiah 9, 23, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord, let, no, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. <laughs> this is the only thing we have ever been encouraged to, to boast in, and that is to boast in the fact that we have met God, that we know God, and that we're pursuing and seeking an understanding of God. When we preachers preach, and when we teachers teach, we are not to help man behold himself. <laughs> we are not to teach and preach men into beholding their own importance or in beholding their own superiority. We are not to preach and teach to help man recognize his own beauty and bask in his own preciousness. No, the application of all teaching and all preaching should be, ladies and gentlemen, behold your God. Ladies and gentlemen, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. Just like in the desert, when Moses took his staff and put a cup, a snake on that, he said, Behold, look, and you will be healed. This ought to be the application of all teaching, and this ought to be the goal and the purpose of all preaching. Ladies and gentlemen, behold your God. Look at Him. See Him. Unfortunately, we oftentimes hear a lot of 
philosophy from pulpits. We hear a lot of psychology and we hear a lot of self-centered teaching where you are great, you are awesome, you are precious, you are wonderful, you are beautiful. But folks, the application of teaching ought to be, behold your God. Because when you see God, only one or two things can happen. You will run for shelter to Christ our ark, or you will fall to your knees and worship Him, for He is glorious. And when we start preaching the attributes of God, man's real heart always surfaces. It always does. Behold your God. Behold, He's a seity. That means He's self-existence. The aseity of God speaks of the fact that He needs no one and He needs nothing to exist. He is not a dependent. He is not independent. He is holy and, self, uh, uh, holy and completely independent of all. He exists. He is the fountain of life. He has life. He generates life. Therefore, He can give life. He is the uncreated creator. That's your God. Behold your God. When we say, behold your God, we are saying, behold His eternality. That is, He is from everlasting to everlasting. From eternity past to eternity future, there has never been... No God. He has always existed. Behold His sovereignty. That means He sits on the highest throne. The throne with the highest and greatest authority from which He rules and He reigns. He always has, He is now, and He always will. God has never not been God. There's never a moment He has not been God. There's never a moment that throne was vacant. There was never a moment he surrendered that throne to another. Not in heaven, not on earth, and not under the earth. God has never not been God. There is no corner in heaven. There is no corner in the universe. There is no corner on earth. There is no corner in hell where God does not rule and reign supremely. Behold your God. This is the application of all teaching and preaching. Behold His omnipotence. Omni means all and everywhere. Potence means powerful. He is all-powerful everywhere at all times, from the highest heaven to the bottom of hell. Your God is mighty. Behold your God. Why are men feeble? Because they don't know this, they don't believe this. Why are people insecure? Because they do not know their God. Why are people uncertain? Because they haven't wrapped their minds around these attributes of the God whom they serve and the God who is with them. Behold His holiness. He is the fountain of life. He is the fountain of light. There is no shadow in Him. I can only imagine in my mind's eye this fountain 
larger than the earth itself, from which light comes constant. It's generated from this fountain. Behold your God. There is no shadow in Him. He is perfect in who He is, in His nature and His character, and He's perfect in all that He does. Behold your God. That is the ultimate goal of preaching and teaching. Over the last 15 years, there has been a revival of Reformed theology around the world, especially right here in the United States. Reformed theology is also called Big God theology. Big God theology. That's Reformed theology. As opposed to big human theology. Theology that lifts man up within himself. Reformed theology is the one that lifts God up and shows man how much he needs a great God. The reason Reformed theology is called big God theology is because of their deliberate contextual reading of scriptures. And all scriptures always articulates God's bigness, God's grandeur. Even so, I can say without exaggeration that even if you are steeped in big God theology, even if that is you, you are steeped in contextual reading of scriptures that always magnifies and glorifies God. Even if you're steeped in that, your view of God is still way, way, way too small. As long as we are on this side of eternity, our view of God will always be way too small and needs to constantly grow. The Christian faith does not make sense unless we preach a grand God. It doesn't make sense unless we teach a great God, a good God, a glorious God. See, we cannot even do biblical evangelism until the last person understands the attributes of this great, glorious, grand, and good God. We cannot even do biblical evangelism until the lost person understands the immensity and the grandeur of His holiness. I'll explain it to you this way. Um, when it comes to evangelism, many of us have been trained to do this bridge diagram. You know the bridge diagram where you draw this picture. On the one hand, you have man. On the other hand, you have God. And in between man and God, there's this great gulf, right? And then what you do is you draw this cross that goes from where man is, and it leans over to where God is, and that enables, that connects the both, so now man can get back to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we, we, it shows that we are able to come back to God and be reconciled back to God through the cross, right? In spite of this gulf that separates us. That's how I was at one time taught on how to explain the gospel to an unsaved person. Well, this is a great diagram to understand, but we are kidding ourselves if we think that people have any sense of what that gulf is that separates God from man. What is that gulf? If we think people know what that gulf is, 
We are being deceived. People have no idea of the reality of this gulf that separates God from man, God from man, because they, they, they think too, too much of themselves and they think way too little of God, which basically erases the gulf. If they don't realize who they are and who God is, there wouldn't be a gulf in their minds and in their hearts. Therefore, they wouldn't need a cross to reconcile the two, to cross that gulf, you see. And that's why Reformed theology helps us understand a big God which creates a huge gulf and a great need for a cross so we can cross that gulf. And we can be reconciled to God. So why do we have to have a big God theology? Why? Because you cannot make sense of the cross unless you have a big God. There is no need for a cross without a big God. You cannot make sense of sin unless you have a perfect and holy God. You cannot make sense of hell unless you have a perfectly just and righteous God. You cannot make sense of why grace is so amazing and mercy is so precious unless you have a wrath-filled God against man's sins. Now in past weeks, the last three weeks, we discussed the aseity of God. We discussed the eternality of God as we studied God. We discussed the sovereignty of God. But today my goal is to look at the next attribute of God that sets God apart as God, and that is the doctrine of the immutability of God. The immutability of God. We're going to discuss what it means when we say God is immutable. We're going to discuss why you and I need to understand God's immutability. What application does it have for you and I. Why is it helpful? Why is it necessary that you and I understand that our God isn't just spirit? Our God isn't just, we, He doesn't just have a seity. He doesn't just have eternality. He doesn't just have sovereignty. He doesn't just rule and reign and has supremacy, supremacy, but He is also immutable. Why do we need to know this? By the end of today, you will know why this is important to you and I as a Christian and a believer. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. I'm immutable. I do not mutate. I do not change. Therefore, because of that, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You and I are not consumed. Why? Because He does not change. He does not mutate. He is immutable. The immutability of God, therefore, means God remains the same forever. There is no change within Him. Immutability by itself could be good or bad, if you think about it. If you are a wicked person, immutability is not a good thing. If you are in pain because of a disease, then being immutable is obviously not good. But if God is immutable in all of His other attributes, in other words, He is immutable in the fact that He is love, and that's never going to change, then that's good. <laughs> He's immutable in all of His sovereignty, 
well then, if he's going to stay sovereign, then that's a good thing. He's immutable in his holiness. In other words, he's perfect in nature and he will always be perfect in nature. He's perfect in character and he will always be perfect in character. He's perfect in his actions, therefore he will always be perfect in his actions. He will never change. Well, then that's good. So if ever somebody needed to be immutable, it needs to be our God. If ever somebody needs to mutate, it's you and I. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Amen? If His truthfulness, His wisdom, His goodness, His justice, His grace remains the same forever toward you, well, then that's a good thing. That's a glorious thing. That's a hopeful thing. That's something that births confidence in you and I. Herman Bavnik he said this, if God was not immutable, then God would not be God. For any kind of change would imply that God was or now is something less or something more than what He was. God cannot increase or grow, for that would mean if He changes, He is either changing for worse or for better. And if God were to change in some way for the better, to improve or to grow, then what He was before must be something less. End quote. In other words, I'll put it in a nutshell for you. Like the Grinch, whose heart grew a few sizes, and he was able to love more, many people see the God they worship in the New Testament as a God who grew in love. He's a God who came to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and suddenly He became more merciful. And He came into, after Malachi, after the 400 years of silence, somehow God became more compassionate, loving, and less wrathful and bloodthirsty. The God we read about in the New Testament didn't suddenly grow in love. He didn't suddenly became, become more kind towards you and I. That would mean He is now more God than what He was then. It would mean that He is a greater God than what He was back then in the Old Testament. No, God in the Old Testament is as loving, as caring, as gracious, as kind as the God you see and read about in the New Testament. They are the exact same God unchangeable, indivisible, immutable, the same. I'm saying this because I really want to encourage you to stop differentiating in your mind and heart between the Old Testament and the New Testament God. You cannot do that. That brings you to many, many pitfalls down the road in your theology, your understanding of God, and it will produce a huge amount of disappointments for you. We don't have the time to outline how all of that happens. But we cannot diminish God by saying that He grew in love. And therefore, He was a changing God. And therefore, He is now more God than what He was then. He's immutable and He's indivisible, the Bible says. You cannot divide Him. 
Exodus 3 verse 14 says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. There is no possibility for I am to be anything other than exactly what he is, which is I am. He is the same. Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. Watch this. Nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not make it good? Rhetorical question. The answer is absolutely yes. Here is how God is different from man. God is the one who does not lie. He does not go back on what he has said or what he has promised. He is the same, and whatever he said will be accomplished and will be done. The conclusion is, he is what he says he is, and he fulfills what he speaks. There is no mutation when it comes to our God. Let's turn to Psalm 102, verse 25. The Bible says, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, even when they, the heavens, and the earth, even when they both will perish, you endure. Much change will come to both heaven and earth, but zero change comes to you, God. You are immutable. It says, and all of them will wear out like a garment, the heaven and the earth. Like, like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. Verse 27, but you are the same. Immutable. And your years will not come to an end. Hebrews, five, uh, Hebrews 6, 17, excuse me. Hebrews 6, verse 17. The Bible says, So God declared to show more. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of His purpose, the unchangeable character of His purpose, the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. Wow. Here God guarantees His immutability with an oath. So right now, I'm giving you scriptural context of the fact that God does not change. I'm soon going to show you how this matters to you. So here we see that God guarantees His immutability with an oath. In summary then, from all these verses we just read, we can say this, that God is immutable in His essence God is immutable in His knowledge, and His will is immutable, and His purpose is unchanging. His will does not change. His purpose does not change. His knowledge does not increase. No, His essence, His person, His character does not change. His nature cannot be altered for better or for worse. His knowledge can never increase or diminish. He already knows everything there is to know. Or can be known. This is your God. Behold your God. Why are you hiding Adam? There is nothing he does not already know. His knowledge can never increase or diminish. Whatever he purposes comes to pass. 
He is, com he is complete being and never becoming. You and I are becoming. We were created. He's uncreated who created. He is being who gives lives to, life to those who become. Nothing can be added to him or be subtracted from him. He learns nothing and he needs nothing to exist. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anyone. But everyone needs him to live. Because in him we live, we move, and we have our being. He doesn't grow and he does not improve. He is already sufficiently perfect, sufficiently holy, and sufficiently glorious. I pointed to this in the past, but this is a wonderful opportunity to refresh our memories. That God is glorious. He has intrinsic glory even if not one person on this earth declares His glory. He is glorious. Why? Because you can take a page, draw a line right down the middle of the page. On the one side of the page is God's intrinsic glory. That is the fact that He is God supreme, sovereign. He is eternal. He is spirit. He is love. He is kindness. He is everything that He is. That's His intrinsic glory. Nobody can add to it and nobody can take away from it. He needs nobody and nothing to be glorious as He is. So on the one side of that page, you have God's intrinsic glory, but on the other side of that page, you have what we call ascribed glory. Intrinsic glory and ascribed glory. Ascribed glory is where you and I come in. And that is that the more we recognize of who He is, the more we see His attributes, His essence, His character, and His nature, the more we see His perfections and the fact that He, that, that he is the fountain of life and He is the fountain of light and nothing exists unless He calls it into existence. When we see His attributes like His truthfulness, He is the one who determines and defines all things. He is what sin, sin is what He says it is. Goodness is what He says it is. Life is how He defines it to be. He is truthful. When we see all these attributes of God, then naturally from us comes this ascribed glory as we give glory or ascribe glory to His already existing intrinsic glory. God doesn't need us to be glorified, to, to, to have to be uh, filled with glory. He has intrinsic glory. We ascribe glory to His existing glory. Now that happens to be the purpose of human life. All things were created for His glory and His pleasure. All things were created to ascribe glory to Him. It doesn't increase his glory. But it changes the one who ascribes glory to him. Family, behold your God. He is mighty and he is glorious. And when we see him, we are changed. When we see 
His attributes, when we recognize them, when we wrap our minds around them, we are changed. When we notice and we start recognizing a big God theology, it is what draws us to Him. Because when we see His goodness, that is what draws us to Him. The goodness of God. So let's talk about, as we come to conclusion here, why do we need to understand the fact of God's immutability? Why does this matter to you and I? Immutability matters for our warning, and it matters for our welfare. Immutability matters for our warning. You see, if God is unchangeable in being, if He's unchangeable in word, if He's unchangeable in promise, and if He's unchangeable in purpose, think about it, then this is a fearful warning for those who reject the Lordship of Christ. It's a fearful warning to those who take who He is lightly and focus upon who they want Him to be. You see, God will not change or will not have a, heart, a change of heart on the last day. He will not alter. He will not have second thoughts on judgment day. God will not violate His word or deny, or deny His own nature. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an immutable God of the Bible. There are millions of people who secretly hold the false hope in their hearts that one day when they meet God, that day He will be a different sort of God. He will be a different kind of God than the one they see in all of the Bible. They think perhaps that when they stand before this holy God in their sinfulness, that God will suddenly and He will surprisingly be lenient, loving, and even indifferent to their sin. That He will somehow just turn a blind eye to their sin. They secretly hold this in their heart and in the back of their mind that God will change the day that they arrive in heaven. People believe that they will stand before God, but He will be a changed God. He will not be the God who cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. He will not be the God who destroyed the earth with the flood. They hold a secret that they believe He will not be the God who struck Ananias and Sapphira with death for lying. They hold that He will not be the God who hurls the wicked and the unbelieving into the lake of eternal fire. No, that's not the God that they're going to stand in front of. They believe He has changed. They believe that He has mutated. Somehow, some way, He has got to be more forgiving and loving towards my recalcitrant heart and my unforgiving lifestyle, my unrepentant lifestyle. If you are hoping for God to be something other than God 
of the Genesis of, of Genesis through Revelation. If you are hoping for God to be something other than the God of the entire Bible, then you are hoping for an impossibility. Why? Because you are hoping for a mutating, changing, altering God. Family, he does not mutate, he does not change, he does not alter. The God who cast Adam and Eve out of the garden is the God who will deal with sin the same way. The God who destroyed the earth with the flood will eventually destroy the earth with fire, the Bible says. The God who struck Ananias and Sapphira dead because of Eli is the God who will pour His wrath out upon all of sin outside of Christ. The God who hurls the wicked and the unbelieving into the lake of fire is the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, who is given by the Father the right to judge all men. And He will, whom we see the God of love, Jesus, is the God of judgment in the, in the New Testament. He is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. Indivisible. One God. The same God, unchanging and immutable. Don't ever let the devil put in your mind the idea that you will stand before a different God than the one you see in Scriptures. The fact is that God does not change. He's immutable in His Word. He's immutable in His justice. He's immutable in His judgment. He's immutable. So we see the immutability matters for our warning. Finally, immutability of God matters for our welfare. For our welfare. You see, if God's immutability, now hold in there, all right? Don't turn me out. If God's immutability is sad news for the wicked outside of Christ, then it is unbelievably good news for those in, in Christ. If the ark, well, let me say, if the flood was bad news for those in the world. The ark is unbelievably good news for those inside of it. God is immutable and never changing in His mercy towards you on Christ's account. God is immovable and never altering in His grace toward you. His grace cannot change toward you. His mercy will never change toward you on Christ's merit. It is constant. It is everlasting. It is immutable. He is immovable in His predestined purposes to be your Father and for you to be His child forever. It is unchanging. It cannot change because God doesn't change. Therefore, His plans don't change. He is immovable in His promise. What are His promises? That you will be justified and you will be made righteous through your faith in Him. That cannot change. The earth will burn and the heaven will, heavens will fold up like a blanket and you will be justified and made righteous because you have faith in Christ Jesus. He does not change. He is immutable. Now that is good news. Now that is a good God. 
He is immovable in His promise to heal the brokenhearted. He is immovable in His promise to never leave you as orphans. You will never be discarded. You will never be rejected. You will never be an orphan. He is immutable in His promise to never leave you. He is immutable in His promise to never forsake you. Now that is a good God. Divine immutability is a doctrine of comfort for the believer. If ever you find comfort, you find comfort in the fact that your God does not change. He chose you and He will never unchoose you. He destined you and He will never undestine you. He foreknew you, in other words, He foreloved you and He will never not love you. The work that He does in you is unchangeable, it is immutable, because He who did the work is unchangeable and immutable. It is forever and ever and ever. And when you stand before Him, just like it is a fearful thought for a, for a wicked man to stand before God, so it is a confident thing to draw nigh to Him and run to Him the day you stand before Him. Because He's the one that did not change His grace, His mercy, His love, His kindness, His forgiveness, His predestinance, and His foreknowledge of you. It doesn't change because He does not change. God's purpose and election of you will stand unaltered, unchanged, never-ending. So, we, so here's why this is important for you and I. We can hold up. We can hold up under very difficult times. We can stand up under trials because we know our God hasn't left us even though it feels that way. We can have patience with things that do not go our way. Nothing's going my way. <laughs> you be patient. In times of uncertainty, our hearts will not fail because our God is immutable. In times of uncertainty, our hearts will not be troubled because our God is immutable. The immutability of God is the foundation of our hope. I have hope in God's promises. Why? Because they cannot change. Why? Because He is immutable. That's why we have hope. If God was a mutating God, all of hope would crumble under that one issue. Because like in the natural world, when you go to court, when you stand up in front of that judge, you hope that judge is having a good day. You fear that judge is having a bad day. But when you stand before God, our God, that fear is gone. Confidence fills you because He is the same. The immutability of God is our bed of peace. It is the reason why you and I can be confident in Him. 
So why do we have to understand the immutability of God? Because immutability matters for both, not just our welfare, but the immutability of God also matters for our warning. And if you are here today watching online and you're saying, Jacques, I'm the one that had the secret hope in my heart that one day when I stand before God, I can reason away the fact that I didn't need to believe what was said in Romans chapter 1. I didn't need to believe the fact that God was the God of justice that threw Adam and Eve out of the garden. That God is the God of wrath who flooded the whole earth. That God is the God of righteousness who struck down dead two people in the New Testament church. I, why? Can, if you are the one that says, well, there has to be a reason why that happened and that reason does not apply to me. If you have that secret hope in your heart that you've always believed that the God you're going to stand in front of when you get to heaven is going to be a different God than the God of the Bible, then you need to come to Him today in faith, knowing that He justifies and He makes right. He gives righteousness, His righteousness to the one who has faith in Christ and Christ alone. What am I calling you to? I'm calling you to turn away from your false perspective of who God is and Behold your God, the immutable, everlasting judge of the universe and heaven. The one who, who currently sits supreme and rules, and he will bring justice either in Christ or in hell. Every single injustice, sin, and crime will be punished. Run to Christ. He's your only hope. If that's you, and you're saying, I need to run to Christ today, I want to encourage you to pray with me today. Say, God, I'm a sinner. God, I need your protection. God, I need this gulf between you and me. I need a cross so I can come over back to you. I put my faith upon that cross of Christ. That everything Jesus did for me is sufficient for my life. Everything Jesus did on the cross is enough for me to be saved and reconciled to you, God. I put my faith in Jesus. Now, I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that if God could raise Jesus from the dead... Therefore, it is possible for Him to keep me alive eternally. I, I receive Christ as Lord. I receive not the idea of Jesus. I receive His rule in my life. I receive His Lordship. I submit to the fact that He is now my King. I serve Him, not myself, not this world. I pray you save me, God, because I put my faith in you and in Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you had a desire to be right with God, I have the best news for you than you have ever heard before, and that is this.
Jesus said, No man can be drawn to me unless God the Father draws him to me. Did you know that? No man yearns for me, wants me, comes to me, runs to me, wants my protection, unless God shows him that he needs it. Therefore, if you have a desire in your heart to be right with God through Christ Jesus, let me tell you, that did not come out of yourself. That did not, that wasn't your own wisdom that made you go, hmm, I need Jesus. No, that was God who drew you. And if God's drawing you, it means God is working in your life. And the work that He has started, that work God will finish. He's immutable. He does not change. He doesn't leave His promises unanswered and unfulfilled. Here's another piece of really, really good news. If you're able to say, I have faith in Jesus Christ. If you're able to exercise and put your trust and lean upon what happened on the cross, lean upon that event for your salvation, for your forgiveness, for your forgiveness of sin. If you're able to have faith in that, it's because God gave you that faith. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. God gave you faith to say, I'm no longer going to trust myself. I'm going to start trusting Christ. Here's another piece of really, really good, good news for you. If you are able to say, I believe that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, I believe in the resurrection. Therefore, I believe that God will resurrect me and I will live with Him forever after this life. If you're able to believe that, it's because God gave you the faith to believe that. And when you believe in that, the Bible says you are justified. He died so you can be forgiven, and He rose from the dead so you can be justified. If these things are true of you, then God has your number. So if you prayed that prayer with me, and this is true for you, I really want to encourage you to keep seeking after God. Keep seeking after God day in and day out. I hope you received something from the Word of God today. And I hope that you were blessed by the understanding of God's immutability. And as we know Him more, we become less fearless, more strong, and God will do greater things in our lives. Remember our opening verse. If there's anything you can boast in, boast in the fact that I just saw something about God's nature. I just learned something and have knowledge about God's character, who He is. Pursue that. And you'll see a change in your life also. Amen.